Hello and welcome to the Essendon People Podcast, an unofficial Essendon Football Club supporter podcast. Hosted by Brendan and Mark, Essendon People is a podcast for those who live and breathe Aussie rules and the Mighty Bombers. From the casual fan to the hardcore supporter, if you have the red and black in your heart, then Essendon People is the podcast for you. Thank you for joining us. Let's Let's start start the pod. pod. Round six review of the Anzac Day game against Collingwood and our round seven preview of the game against the Dogs coming up. Brendan, we went to Anzac Day. It was a good build-up as usual. Uh, still not able to get the result. No, no. Um, the best part of the day was probably the early part there, getting there early, sunshine, uh, catching up with, you know, not only ourselves, but the people we we sit around with there at the football there. And then, of course, being able to... Um, to pay our respects to you know the former and current servicemen uh, before the game, and uh, yeah, and then the uh, the game started, kind of ebbed and flowed there, and just kind of got away from us a bit late there. But um, yeah, all in all, it was uh, it was one of those good days at the football. I actually, quite enjoyed there. I think I, we, we was talking to each other, just had a little moment there at half time. Said, "Geez, it's good to be back with a full crowd," and you know, I've missed this. <laughs> Yeah, it was good. There was close to 85,000 there from memory. And um, like you said, it was a stunning day for a perfect day and a really good opportunity to to pay respects um, to service people as well. And uh, yeah, good day. Good day at the footy. Unfortunately, the result didn't go away. But nonetheless, uh, it was good to good to be back with friends and watching the game. So it was uh, Essendon 10, uh, sorry, 12 goals, 10, 82 to Collingwood, 15 goals, 3, 93. So um, we'll go through the quarter by quarter. I, I guess as a quick summation of the game, in my opinion, and we'll go through a bit more of this in the good, bad and ugly, but it felt like we went, obviously we're coming off that Freo game where we were, we were very bad and uh, and copped it in the media all week and there was a lot of pressure on the club. And it, to be honest, I felt like we just went from being extremely bad back to bad, back to normal bad, Um I don't feel like we necessarily outright deserved the game necessarily. I think it was pretty even uh, for the most part between both clubs. But to me, it was clear that both clubs were bottom eight sides. And uh, I still think that given the absolute shellacking we copped in the media, I was I kind of thought there might have been something extra on top as well. But I, I think I've sort of come to the realisation that we're just not really capable of that at the moment and maybe from this year um, or in, in general. So we'll go through the quarter by quarter and then maybe we'll delve a bit more into that um, with the good, bad and ugly. So first quarter there, uh, it was two goals, two Essendon, two, three goals, two Collingwood. So we were down by a goal at quarter time. In the second quarter, uh, we kicked two goals, four to their three goals straight. So lost that quarter by two points and went in at half time, eight points down. I guess the accuracy was obviously well publicised during the game uh, and after the game. So first quarter, we go up 50%. They go at 60%. No real big deal. We're down by a goal. But the second quarter, there we have six shots on goal, but go at 33%. They only have three shots on goal, but go at 100%. It, it just really hurts you um, when you don't capitalise on, on forward entries. Yeah. And like just to sum that up for the half, we have two more scoring shots, 10 to 8, right? But we're down by eight points and we're converting at 40% and they're at 75. You know, so really, if we get our 
you know, up say was seventy five apiece, we're a couple of goals in front. Right. So and that was that was the margin pretty much all day really it was that two, three goals there. We just couldn't quite get it close enough to get momentum and couldn't wrestle it back. It's kind of you know, it was just a real frustrating game game to watch. Uh, in the third quarter, uh, we had six scoring shots to four. We kicked 4-2 to their 3-1. Uh, again, only converted at the 66%, but we managed to, to win that quarter. And in the final quarter, 4-2 uh, to six straight. Lost, lost the quarter by 10 points, lost the game by 11. So really, there we go. That, that sums it all up. That last quarter, just if you wanted one snapshot of the game, in one quarter, we had the same amount of scoring shots. We went at less conversion. We kicked those those two pies, become two goals. We win the game by point. Right, really. And again, another quarter where we've let ourselves had six goals kicked against us. It's happened. Every game this year, it feels like we've got a, a five-goal run has gone against us, and we just don't do anything to stop it. Yeah, we really struggle to, to swing the momentum. So with that, we'll jump into the good, bad, and ugly. So we'll start with some positives. So uh, this is a somewhat positive. It was nearly going to be a negative, this one, or, or a bad, because earlier in the week leading into the game, the club announced that Zach Merritt and Jake Stringer were in the side, and basically I think every supporter uh, that has a heartbeat just doubted that that was actually true. Merritt uh, was only three or four weeks into that syndesmosis injury with having had surgery. And um, Jake Stringer was only two weeks into a hamstring injury, which is normally four weeks. So I think we all had our doubts and we've been pretty dudded in the past, to be honest, by team selection and laid outs and um, maybe some misleading information about how well people are going or bringing people back too early. So even if they did play, we were concerned, but much to our surprise and, uh, and shock and uh, I guess happiness in the end that it, it was a truthful selection and ended up being probably the right call because both players played and played pretty well. I think Stringer looked underdone, but nonetheless, he had 10 disposals, kicked three goals, uh, three goals, two or three goals, three. So he had plenty of shots on goal and it was pretty influential, I guess you'd say, despite not really being fit. And Merritt had a 36 disposals, had four tackles, six inside fifties, four clearances, um, so he, he had a big impact on the game. So I think that was a positive that they both made their way back. They're both really important players for us and good to see them back on the field. Yeah, and I guess the the, the real test of it is, is are they going to be able to back up this week off a six-day break? Uh, so, but uh, yeah, again, Stringer, I agree with you. For periods of time, he didn't quite look uh, at his at full fitness. Uh, probably spent a bit more time forward as he's pretty much done all all this year. Last year was that you know that mid forward there getting at stoppages. This year it's been more forward. Oh, Zach Merritt, I just think he was um he's just just a naturally fit guy, and the amount of work that he puts in over the off season and off the preseason, he can kind of come back a bit early there. But he was blowing. I know we sit kind of like on the perfect you know that level two on near the bench there, and uh, we could see him and he was. I've never seen him come off the bench so exhausted before. You know, maybe he just haven't uh, noticed it there. But normally he's he's just runs out games pretty strongly there, and he just looked he looked pretty tired. So um, yeah, but I guess thirty six disposals coming off <laughs> three weeks when it should have been eight. 
um, just shows how good a player Zach Merritt is. And, you know, we won plenty of the ball. Uh, so we had 50 more disposals. Uh, around the same amount of kicks, but our handball number was way up, 192 to 131. And that was kind of a trend. You know, we talk about this Richmond handball game, but I guess what the difference has been, Mark, and I'm not sure if you're agreeing on this, is Richmond put off forward handballs. Whereas us, for whatever reason, seems to be a lot of sidewards and backwards handballs, especially in the defensive half, a lot of backward handballs in that, you know, in that back pocket, you know, on up to half forward and really just sometimes you just want them to clear the ball out, you know, and get it up the ground. What did you think? Yeah, I think you're right. The, the Richmond one that everyone talks about for a few years ago when they were really dominant was they were often referred to as a wave where they all just ran forward and kept linking up and creating and, and blocking for each other and just pushing forward and, and that momentum. And uh, ours is probably, if theirs is a wave, ours is probably more of a rip where it starts to go forward, kind of turns around, comes back and takes you out to sea. So, um, yeah, just a bit of ill direction there. Maybe maybe we're just overusing the ball a little bit too much um, by hand, I guess that's, that's suggesting. So um, we won it inside and out. We did use it reasonably well around the ground, I guess. So contested possessions, uh, 123 to 114 in our favour. Uncontested possessions were well up as well by 50, so 267 to 217. Uh, effective disposals, we had 309, they had 256. And our disposal efficiency was just shy of 80% compared to their 75, 76%. So I think overall, that's probably a vast improvement on what we what we normally see. We list out in the uglies, the players that get under 70%, and that, num- that number of players was really growing over the last few weeks. And um, I guess to seem to be nearly at 80% is was pretty good uh, overall efficiency. Yeah, and that re- that kind of, re- especially with the contested stuff, started in the middle with... um with Draper and Parrish, a real one-two ruck and rover combo. So Draper, he only had the 16 disposals, three marks, but he had the 27 hitouts, the five inside 50s and four clearances himself. And then Darcy had the, had the 41 disposals, uh, a mark, you know, a couple tackles, three inside 50s, and the big number there is, uh, is 12 clearances there. So, you know, of those 12, seven of them came in the centre, and five were around the ground, uh, and I guess with the how did you rate Darcy's game there? You know he had the he had the forty four touches, thirteen of them were kicks, thirty one were handballs. From my perspective, Mark, he kind of contrasting Parish and Draper. A lot of Parish's ball seemed to be that that handball backwards or sideways, trying to release uh, kind of the ball out from the contest. Was Drapers was a lot of like you get the ball and kind of get it forward. It was that forward handball we talked about, or was that sometimes he just dump kicks it and the ball just gets out of the area. He seemed to be more proactive in getting the ball forward as opposed to Parrish, who was kind of more sideways and backwards. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, potentially controversial. Um, yeah, to a lot of people saying Parrish was best on ground. I, I just don't agree with that. I, I just I don't think that his impact on the game considering the amount of disposals that he had at 44, I don't think his impact on the game was that, that you would say he was the best player on the ground. Um, it'll come up later as well, I guess, when we do our votes. But, um, yeah, I, I thought, like you said, someone like a Draper, you, you could see the 
the, the presence that he was having and the opportunities it was creating. Even someone like a Jake Kelly. I know it's difficult to compare Jake Kelly playing, you know, back pocket, fullback kind of position uh, to a Darcy Parish in the midfield. But it, I'm just sort of talking about, I guess, game-saving moments or play-saving moments and impact on the game and desperation and, and um, you know, just creating opportunities for others and, and uh, being doing the right things at the right time. I think Darcy had a few times where, he, you know, you can't get them right all the time, especially if you're getting 44 disposals. Not all of them can be effective, I guess. But, um, yeah, I'd like to just see him be a little bit more damaging uh, with, with the amount of ball he's getting in hand. I think from a good player to compare him to, again, not similar in terms of style, but just what how they get the ball and what they do with it is um, Clayton Oliver from Melbourne. So a couple of years ago, Clayton was winning plenty of the ball, but it was real handball heavy, you know? It was kind of like how much damage are you getting for your disposal? And the comparison was always with Clayton was he, he's playing in the same size as Petrarca, and Petrarca's real damaging forward, aggressive, you know, kind of like what Stringer is to us when he's fit. Right, but you know, last year and kind of a little bit in the second half of the year before, he really started working on his kicking and getting more kicks into his game, right? And that's you know, as he's become a better kick, he's obviously um started to kick more, and that's really taken him from being you know one of the premier contested players in the competition to one of the premier players as a whole. I think that you know. This game, is it's one game, so what can you say? But a microcosm of what I'm talking about in that 13 kicks of 31 handballs. I think that that needs to be balanced a bit more. And look at Merritt's game. Like, I think Merritt has that balance a little bit better. So I think that's kind of what we'd, I'd like, I, would, I would like to see from Darcy. But having said that, he's a bloody good player. So <laughs> if you're just going to do what you keep doing, you know, I'll take that. But, I, you know, 12 clearances is pretty hard to do. But, yeah. We'll, we'll move on to the bad category now. Um, so I'll kick us off here. We won the majority of the stats, which is what we just described in the good category, uh, but we still lost the game, I guess, which was disappointing. We, you know, you've got all the play, you're getting all the possessions, you're controlling a lot of the play, and to still lose the game. Uh, I guess some of the stats that we did lose was the marks, 105 to Collingwood, 95 to Essendon. Contested marks, 14 to Collingwood, 8 to Essendon. And then maybe a more glaring one um, here was... Marks inside 50, we actually had 17 to their nine, uh, which I guess is pretty good. And then unable to capitalise on that, as we mentioned earlier, which is which is the issue. If you're taking that many marks inside 50, yeah, you'd like to be creating a lot of scores and hopefully a lot of goals. And that's not something we did, which leads us into the next point. Yeah, so inside 50s, 52 to 48. 22 scoring shots to 18. We had 89 score involvements to Collingwood 74, but once again, inaccuracy in front of goal cost us. Conversion. Collingwood, 83%. Essendon, 54%. Convert at 54% and you lose and you lose the game by two goals. That's 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 literally a game where conversion has cost us. Yeah, and if you're gonna that's... if you're gonna convert it at, you know, call it 50% nearly, then you probably want to be generating 35, 40 shots on goal to be able to post a big score, So, uh, which is not realistic to, and not sustainable to, to be able to do that. You, you've got to go back to the 2,000 premiership side to, to be able to get those sort of numbers. 
converting at 50% is literally you have to work twice as hard because you're wasting half your opportunities. So, and when you're, as you say, 2000, we're an absolute dominant side. We're, you know, one of the best sides to have ever played the game. So we can just get more, as many opportunities as we like because we're so good. We're far from the 2000 Bombers at the moment. <laughs> so we can't afford to not use the ball well because we're not getting all that many chances to use it well. Another one was the tackles. So I guess we've mentioned that we've been pretty pretty beat up in the media leading into this game off a really poor performance against Fremantle. And uh, I guess when that happens, you usually see a response. And, and the, the easiest way that, that comes is via pressure, tackles and one percenters, the, the things that you can do without having to have, you know, immense fitness, skill, brain, anything like that. So the tackles, Essendon 40 to Collingwood 52, was that a result of us maybe just having more of the ball? I don't, I don't really think so. I think there was like ample opportunities for both teams to tackle on the day. I think it was a pretty even spread game overall. Both teams were pretty evenly matched. And, uh, yeah, with tw- 12 down on tackles for the whole game. And then tackles inside 50 is more damning there. Collingwood had 50 tackles inside their forward 50. We only had the three. We're, just, we're really struggling to keep it inside our forward 50 and – to not only keep it in there, but to create opportunities where the ball falls out or you get given a free kick for holding the ball and then you can have a shot on goal. So we're really missing, you know, someone like Tipper over years gone by where he creates that pressure and snaps a goal or, um, you know, any kind of small forward like that who has a bit of goal mass about them that can create that pressure, keep it in there, build more pressure and then bang, shot on goal. Well, that's it. We have three in tackles inside 50. They have 11. They're four times greater than we are, right? And, you know, we, we talk a lot, oh, we don't have a tipper. But, okay, tip, tip is exceptional at it, right? We don't we – don't, we should just get a general performance. We've got six forwards in the forward line, right? They can't generate more than three tackles over the course of a game, <laughs> right? And, you know, they talk, there's a lot of talk about this Richmond game style. We talk, we all talk just, just mentioned before about that forward handball. Well, what – what was also critical to that Richmond style was forward pressure and tackles inside 50, trapping the ball in, getting repeat inside 50s and repeat shots on goal, right? So you can't play a handball-heavy game and not tackle. They need to go together because if you only do one and not the other, you end up where we are and that's getting beat every week. So that needs to improve. I guess that also leads us nicely into the next point here we've got is coast-to-coast goals against us. So that happened, it felt like two to three times that it definitely happened in the game. There's two that I can vividly remember, and I reckon it maybe happened a third time as well, where the ball went from full back to them kicking a goal without us touching the ball the whole way down the ground. And I guess that, that highlights a lack of defensive pressure, and that starts from those tackles inside your forward 50. If you can't keep it inside your forward 50, then all of a sudden it's going through the midfield and... Everyone knows statistically this year we've had a really weak defensive midfield and it sails through the midfield and all of a sudden the back line's under a lot of pressure because they haven't been able to prepare. So two to three times we let easy coast-to-coast goals go through and I don't really remember us doing the same the opposite way. So before you know it, there's your, there's your margin. You've lost by two goals and you've let, let a couple go easy that uh, maybe you could have stopped if you just set up a bit better or pressured someone, corralled someone, tackled held the tackle instead of not stick it, something like that. Um, 
In keeping with the defenders, we'll just go through a couple of players now. So Dyson Heppel had 19 disposals, four marks, one tackle, one rebound, 54 intercepts. But this is going to sound pretty harsh on the captain, but I think he had his colours lowered by a 10-game player in um, Jack Univet, who won the Anzac Day medal. Kick five, four of them were definitely on Heppel. I just thought, regardless of if you're the captain or your, I guess, you know, commitment to fulfilling the role or whatever. I think there was a period there where everyone could see that this kid was getting on top of the game and and was a real problem for us down there. I think we needed to make the change. That either needed to come from the coaching staff, which it didn't, or it needed to come from Heppel himself putting his hand up and saying, hey, Andy McGrath, let's swap players. This, This kid's a bit too quick for me. He's a bit too nimble. He's getting off me at the packs or something like that. Um, you know, it does happen in games where, where that happens and players switch with another player or, you know, there's some sort of matchup change made, even if it's just for the rest of that quarter. Um, I, I think that needed to happen and it just never happened. So that was disappointing. I guess our biggest home and away game for the year in front of 85,000 people and the captain gets hands down beat by a 10-game player. Now, I know that can be a one-off, but it's about what you do in the game to to stop that or to make a difference or to change it. I guess there was another opportunity there in the fourth quarter when Parrish went off the ground after he'd, he'd sort of rolled the ankle and Merritt was on the bench, like you said, sort of sucking in air because he needed a break. And um, that was probably the time where maybe Heppel could have put his hand up and said, hey, I've just seen Scott Pendlebury go into the middle. It's late in the game. It's on the line. And he didn't do that. And Pendlebury did, uh, the opposing captain. And he really made a difference in there and, and won clearances and, got them moving the ball their way. Yeah, and look, I think that's partly on Heppel, but also on the coaching group. That I think there's been, there seems to have been an instruction that Hep doesn't play on ball anymore. Right? And, you know, I don't think that's – I don't think you should ban someone who's been top five and the best and fairest for a decade as a midfielder from going in the midfield, especially when we've got Merritt and Parrish on the bench, Stringer's – not up up forward. He's not getting midfield minutes. Right. We got you know Ben Hobbs in there. Like yeah, it's good to expose Ben Hobbs, but I want to ex- I want to expose Ben Hobbs to some midfield minutes. You know, in in the second quarter, in the third quarter, not ten minutes to go. You know, in under two goals. You know, and then it wasn't just Pendlebury; it was also side bottom as well. So they put two senior players into the middle. We we had that opportunity just to kind of whilst. They were assessing Parrish whilst Merritt was getting a, a, a break. Five minutes, go in there, you know. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think there's, we've talked about it a lot, the lack of creativity in the coaching to allowing players to make these sorts of decisions on the ground is something to um, to consider. And then um, I don't anything, the only real other one was injuries. So Parrish's ankle and Laverde's knee, uh, they're hopefully both bad. Sounds like both are tests for this week, but um, yeah, certainly, certainly with Lav, he just seems to get really bad knocks every week. He's such a warrior, and um, yeah, Darcy, I just he, he, as soon as he saw the ankle that happened right in front of us, Mark, I thought, oh, that's that's Sack Merritt's syndesmosis written all over it. So <laughs> I thought, oh no. <laughs> yeah, I think the club said he's since been cleared of any structural issues, so hopefully keeps off it a little bit this week and comes good for Sunday. Fingers crossed. We can't afford to lose someone like Darcy Parrish. 
and uh, Jane Laverty as well is, is going to be a test and likewise we need him out there. So we'll move on to the ugly category, our last bit of negativity, and then we'll try and be a bit more positive for the rest of the pods. So losing to Anzac, losing to Collingwood, sorry, on Anzac Day, arch rival, we seem to win one and then lose the next three. It just, it's real frustrating. They've, they've sort of got the wood over us for the most part on Anzac Day and it, it would be good to even that up a bit more. Uh, I guess what maybe annoyed me most was after the game, I guess listening to some of the press conferences and uh, hearing some of the feedback from from um, people around the club or some fans and stuff like that. There, there was a lot of people who thought it was okay to have put in a put in a four-quarter performance. I think Rutten used the term that we turned up. There was, you know, there was um, people saying, you know, we have, we have imp- we improved from last week. Like we had a pretty low benchmark against Frio because we had no effort at all. So you, we, we went from 0% to, uh, you know, to coming up to still what, what in my mind wasn't 100%. And it feels like we're just maybe satisfied to accept, you know, a bit of improvement on a bad performance that, you know, there's, these excuses that the new uh, the John Worsfold thing at the time was learnings, and now it seems to be that progress isn't linear. We keep getting pushed that down our throat every week. So uh, I guess we're getting a bit fed up of hearing all those words. And that we understand we're not going to be a premiership side this year. We're not going to be top four. We're not even going to be top eight, and that's fine. We we quite enjoyed last year, even when we didn't think we were going to make finals. We were enjoying the style of football that we were playing and the development that we were getting into players and some of the changes we were throwing around and doing and watching players play for each other. And I feel like we're not getting that this year and that the club and some of the people around the club just seem satisfied to accept that or to accept mediocrity, which we've accepted for 15 years now or more. So just a bit of a bit of an annoyance after the game. The game was pretty closely contested and it was an improvement. That's no doubt about that. But I don't think we should just be satisfied uh, with that level of performance at the moment. No, I, I, I agree with you, Mark. And, you know, the goal for this football club is not to progress. It's not to be a good football side. It's not to make finals. It's not to win a final. It's to win premierships. Right? And, yes, we agree that progress isn't linear and you're going to have your ups and downs, but it's been, what, six weeks Right, there's been no progression at all off last year. Right, even our one game that we won against Adelaide, that was a real average game. Right, it hasn't. You can't tell me there's who in this who in this side is playing better football this year than what they did last year. I can't name one. Yeah, right? I can't either. I guess a lot of guys had potentially career best form. Last year, the only one I can think is someone like a Mac Welfy. Um, oh. is, is one that maybe stands out. But... Peter Wright is probably another one, right? But overall, though, and what Guelph's playing a role as a defensive forward, bringing the pressure right there. You know, I really love what Guelph is doing, but you know, pressure forwards don't win your premierships, right? And Terminator Peter's is is one man band at the moment, you know. He just get he gets the ball kicked on his head. If he can mark it in the air, that's it. You know, at two hundred centimeters, two hundred centimeters, his follow up work isn't going to be the key part of his game. So he's either mark it in the air or he's out of the contest. So you know, two players. You know, <laughs> that's what do they say? Swallow doesn't make a summer. We got to start getting more people involved, playing at a 
higher, more consistent level. And finally, in the uglies, every week, if you get under 70% disposal efficiency, you're getting in the uglies. So, Guelphy, Nick Hind, Sam Draper, Jake Stringer, Kane Baldwin, all went under 70%. Um, you know, Stringer kicked three goals. Drapes, we mentioned, had a pretty good game. Like Guelph's game as well. But, yeah, just you really need to improve this disposal efficiency uh, make use of uh, the ball when we get it. We'll finish off this first part of the pod just with our Heath Hocking medal votes. I'll um I'll go through mine quickly. Five versus Zach Merritt. I thought he had a pretty pretty complete game and was uh was pretty good coming back from injury like that as well. Four votes to Mason Redmond. I think he flew under the radar of a lot of people to be honest. I think he he gave he gave his all and tried to really create and uh, and give us something. I, I couldn't fault Redmond's game. Three votes I go to Alec Waterman. Played his role really well. Kicked the four goals. Just every time he was uh, near the ball, you, you felt like he was going to try and create something. Sam Durham, similar thing. He's, he's getting his possession count up there every week now as well. He's pushing close to 20 possessions a week. And you always see him smothering, tackling. Um, can't fault his effort. And at the moment with where the club and the team's at, uh, that's, a, that's a really good sign to see from a player. And uh, one vote I gave to Sam Draper. It, ironically, it's just been mentioned in the Uglies for less than 70% disposal efficiency. But uh, having said that, I thought that, um, like I said earlier, he really imposed himself on the game. He became physical. He took marks around the ground. He floated back to defensive positions. Yes, he's still got areas that he can improve, improve in, but thought he um, thought he really took a step up and uh, rose to the occasion and did some good team things. Yeah, so... My five votes went to Zach Merritt. I thought he was their best player. I thought, you know, as I mentioned before, his kicking of the ball kind of was a bit more uh, offensive than what we got out of Parrish. So he got my five votes there. My four votes went to Jake Kelly. I thought when the heat was on early, he was um, he really competed hard. Uh, several times he beat his man one-on-one. Other times he came off his own man to kind of stop the stop the play to get over in the top that would have conceded a goal. So I really like his work as from a defensive aspect. Three votes to Mason Redman, two to Alec Waterman and one to Matt Guelphie. So, you know, three defenders in there. And so I think that pretty much says kind of what I valued out of the day, especially coming off uh, last week. All right, we'll go to our first break and we'll come back with a bit of uh, VFL and VFLW news. So, Brendan, unfortunately, the VFL team still remains winless. They played the Pies as well on Anzac Day just before the main game at Windy Hill, I believe. And uh, it was Essendon 10 goals, 13-73 to Collingwood, 20 goals, 11-131. So, I guess they they got, got away to a fast start. Collingwood kicked the four goals in the first quarter to our one. And then in the uh, second quarter, we had a bit of a bit of a resurgence. We kicked six goals to their four, and uh, only only trailed by a goal or so there at half time, and really let them get away in the uh, third and fourth quarter there. Yeah, they kicked kick, kick twelve goals in that in that second half to our three. Uh, <laughs> kind of inaccuracies again, you know, ten thirteen to to twenty eleven. Um, yeah, could hardly uh, could hardly say that we the game slipped away from us there. Uh, it was a uh, it was a you, you can't you <laughs> can't lose by ten goals and be a, a slippage. Uh, 
But we'll get into some uh, some AFL players and see how they went on the day. So Devin Smith, uh, first game back, probably VFL level for, for quite a while for Devin. Uh, he had the 28 touches, uh, four tackles, uh, kicked it behind. Uh, Tommy Cutler uh, played a half, I believe. I think he was the carryover emergency for the AFL side. Had 17, three marks, a tackle. Nick Bryan, again, racked one out there. Uh, 11 disposals, two marks, two tackles, 31 hitouts. Uh, Alistair Lord, 15 disposals and a mark. Promising game from Zach Reed there, 17 disposals and eight marks there. Really starting to, you know, work into full game time, VFL level, uh, you know, strong in the air and kind of getting around the ground, which is desperately needed there with our lack of height and our back line at the moment. And then uh, Josh Ayer, only the nine disposals, managed to kick a sausage and took the four marks. Uh, who else we got there, Mark? Yeah, so we've got Braden Ham had 27 disposals, took six marks and had 10 tackles. I guess that, that tackle number is promising, showing that he's, he's going back to the VFL and really, uh, really working hard. Garrett McDonough had 19 disposals, four marks and a tackle. Cody Brand had eight disposals, three marks and two tackles. Uh, word is that Cody played uh, a typical Cody game. I, I feel like that's maybe reliving a bit of the Marty Gleeson days, but um, similar style of player where he uh, just beats his beats his man each week by the sounds of it. So Cody Brand's going along okay. Kim McBride, he had the five disposals, three marks and three tackles. I think he played played in the back line and I'm not sure that's his best spot. I think he's, he seems to have played better either through the ruck or up forward um, when he's been trialled down those those areas. Uh, Anthony McDonald Tipper and Woody Tipper had 15 disposals, kicked two goals, one, a couple of marks and a tackle. And uh, young Tom Hurd had probably his best game for the club, had 27 disposals, kicked two goals, three, had eight marks and five tackles. That's a that's a pretty well-rounded, well-rounded game for young Tom. It's uh, nice to see the Hurd name shining on Anzac Day again. That's it. That's it. And the, the eight marks is probably what stands out to me there. It's good to see him kind of getting around the ground and, you know, obviously two goals, three is great as well. But, yeah, the eight marks. And he's obviously, he's always, despite being a little fella there, Tommy, he's always good for a couple of tackles each week. So we'll touch on to some VFL-listed players. So uh, number 77, Joel Fitzgerald. He had 20 disposals and five marks. Uh, number 60, the captain, Joe Atley, had 19 and five tackles. Uh, 56, Will Golds had 15 touches, uh, kicked the goal, Three marks, uh, Sam Conforti, number 53, 15 disposals, a goal and two marks. And uh, also number 80 was a debutant, was uh, Alex Hurd, which is uh, Tom's younger brother, uh, obviously son James. He played his first game of VFL football, uh, first game for Essendon. He had the, had the nine disposals, two marks, one tackle and kicked the goal on debut there. So by all reports, probably played on, played on a wing, kind of... Uh, had had some good moments there. Obviously, quite a quite a young player in terms of uh, experience and physical development. So, uh, hopefully, for for Alex, they can kind of get a you know number of games this year in the VFL and just kind of you know get a gradual reintroduction of football like the same's happened with Tom. So the VFL team sits twentieth on the ladder out of the twenty two sides. They've played five games. Yet to get in the uh, on the winners column, so five losses and a percentage of seventy five percent. The next match that they play is this Sunday at eleven thirty five against the Western Bulldogs at Witten Oval. So that 
that 11.35 time slot is quite good because anyone who's looking to do the double header can make it from Whit Noble to Marvel pretty easily for the sort of 3.20 game, I think, for the AFL. So anyone who's interested in watching the VFL and supporting the VFL boys and, um, yeah, 11.35 uh, at Whit Noble on Sunday. Yep, so we'll move on to the VFLW and they uh, they keep on keeping on there. Played against <laughs> played against Collingwood and had a had a big big win. So uh, 14, 10, 94 to three goals three twenty one uh, was really dominant in that in that second half there, um, especially that last quarter there. Kick kick the six goals to really uh, to really get away from the pies there. So uh, we'll talk about the goal kickers. So number seventeen Federica Few. Uh, 16 disposals, four goals, two, five marks and one tackle. She is the uh, – we had the number 18 on the back, Mark. You think there were the numbers that Lordy was putting up. She just kicks bags and bags every week, uh, does through. Uh, number 24, Renee Tierney, 18 disposals, three goals, two, eight marks, two tackles. Uh, Mia Ray Clifford, number four, uh, 13 disposals, two goals, one, four marks, two tackles. Number 44, Grace Dicker, 11 disposals, two goals, one and six marks. And then Celia McIntosh, number 20, uh, seven disposals, two goals, one mark, one tackle. So they they were our multiple goal kickers there. And uh, it's good to see, what's that, five players get, you know, two goals or more in the game of football. They haven't seen too many Essendon sides of of recent times do that, Mark. No, they're a real powerhouse and uh, putting up some big scores and, and, yeah, there's some players that are kicking multiple goals each week. So it's um, very promising signs. Uh, in terms of major ball winners there, number five, again, number five on Anzac Day, it's just uh, been a reoccurring theme. And to see the long sleeve, number five too, George and Anscown running around, 26 disposals, three marks and 10 tackles. It's just a tackling beast. Um, really good. That's a reason why she's co-captain. Uh, number 42, Jordan Zanketa, 20 disposals, three marks and four tackles. Number 20, 23, Amelia Radford, 19 disposals, five marks and two tackles. Number 24, Joanne Doonan, 18 disposals, two marks and one tackle. So the VFLW team sits second on the ladder, played the nine games for eight wins in that one draw, percentage of 428%. And they play the Western Bulldogs as well at Witten Oval on Saturday at 2pm. So go Saturday Saturday afternoon at Witten Oval, go back Sunday morning and then go to Marvel on uh, Sunday Arvo. And I dare say you'll probably be most impressed by the Saturday morning game. Oh, that's it. That's it. Hopefully we can go three for three there. <laughs> so, you know, we move from the VFLW to the AFLW. And this week we had, uh, we announced two signings, uh, Caitlin Sargent and... Stephanie Kane. So, Caitlin Sargent is an 18-year-old from the Western Jets. So, she's key forward. She's an overage player this year. Didn't was eligible last year. Didn't get picked up, and now uh, has went back and uh, has really dominated this year. She's kicked the, uh, the 21 goals from 10 games. Uh, so, it's good to see a young, promising player that can hopefully have a long career at AFLW level for us. And then Stephanie Kane is a is a 25-year-old. She actually has played. AFLW for the past six years for Fremantle. She's a West Australian girl. So I played the 32 games there. She's on a wing. So she's taken the big step to actually say, I'm going to, you know, leave my home state and come play football in Victoria, come play for the Bombers. So good to have her experience uh, in the midfield there. And was looking like with 
with Kane, Georgia G, Matty Frisparkis there. That uh, that midfield group, Mark, is looking um pretty strong already. And then with with Sargent and, and Bonnie Tugold up forward, it looks like we're going we might have some uh, a good decent spine building. Yeah, no, it's looking looking very strong. And for a while there, it looked like they were trying to sign a team of girls that were either named Georgie or Georgia uh, when they were first yeah. recruiting players. Well, a sister named Georgie or Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, it's definitely building a very strong side. It's exciting to see that starting to come together. The VWFL wheelchair side, so their results on the weekend, the senior side was Essendon 15 goals, 5.95, defeated Collingwood 7 goals, 8.50, so a dominant victory there for the senior side. The development side, Essendon 10 goals, 2.62, Defeated Collingwood four goals three twenty seven so another develop uh, another uh, dominant win there as well so both both of the um, BWFL sides also getting victories they have a bye coming up this week and their next match is on Sunday the fifteenth of May versus Richmond so we'll go to another break and we'll come back with some Don's DNA's and Bombers numbers. <laughs> Uh, I, I had called it Father Sons of Essendon, but there's also some daughters in there, Brennan. So we're going to maybe call it Bomber Generations. Maybe that's that's a better way to call it. So we'll start with the Fletcher family. So Ken Fletcher, 264 games for Essendon, 55 goals. He was the 1978 best and fairest. And I think we all know his son, Dustin Fletcher, who then went on to play 400 games, 71 goals, drafted in 1992, two-time premiership player, two-time All-Australian and best and fairest in a premiership year. So between the Fletcher father and son, they've played 664 games, which I believe is still a, a record um, for father and sons in, in the league. Um, Dustin's sons, Mason Fletcher and Max Fletcher, were also in, in the development kind of phase at, at Essendon and played uh, under-18s and, and everything, but they didn't go on to get drafted at Essendon and, um, and play. They've since gone to America. So... Mason plays for the Cincinnati Bearcats in college NFL and Max has just signed with the Arkansas Razorbacks in college NFL. So uh, swap codes with that booming kick that the, the Fletchers are famous for. So move on to the Watsons. Tim Watson, 307 games, 335 goals, three-time BFL slash AFL premiership player and four-time BNF winner. Uh, his son, Job, obviously no slouch either, 200 games, 113 goals, was drafted in 2002, three-time best and fairest winner himself, two-time All-Australian, and I guess on this podcast we can say Brownlow medalist as well. I think I'm happy to happy to confirm Joe is a Brownlow medalist. Um, move on to the Neagle. So Merv Neagle, 147 games for Essendon. He also played 56 games for Sydney, so over 200 games total. Kicked the 71 goals. Played in the 1984 Premiership. Kicked the first goal of that game, I believe. Uh, his son, Jay, played 28 games across three years and kicked 41 goals himself, which is pretty handy off that amount of games. He was sort of hampered by ankle injuries and the like. I know he was a personal favourite of yours, Brendan. Uh, the Danaher family. So Anthony Danaher, 115 games for South Melbourne, then 118 games for Essendon, so over 230 games total, 80, games, 80 goals for his career. Darcy Danaher played the six games after being drafted in 2007, and then Joe who we all know played 108 games for Essendon since moved to Brisbane. Uh, he's kicked over 100 goals in his career so far. On to the Long family. So Michael Long, another big name in Essendon, 190 games, two-time premiership player, Norm Smith medalist. Jake Long played the five games after being drafted in 2014. I felt like Jake 
maybe could have been given a bit more opportunity. I thought he showed a bit, but unfortunately fell out of the system. And Michaela Wong uh, in 2017 was on the Essendon BFLW list. So Michael's daughter there was part of history, part of essentially Essendon's first women's team uh, and squad there. So quite an achievement. Dean Wallace, everyone will remember as a hard back win, 127 games for Essendon. His son, Tom Wallace, was drafted in 2015. Unfortunately, didn't play a game. Uh, and then we move on to the Hurd family. This one takes quite a while to get through because there's a few of them here. So Alan Hurd, senior, 102 games um, for Essendon, 154 games in total. He also played for Hawthorne and St Kilda. Uh, Alan Hurd, Jr., played four games. So that's James's dad. And then James, obviously, 253 games, 343 goals. Won the Brownlow Medal in 1996, five-time All-Australian, two-time Premiership player. Uh, his daughter, Stephanie Hurd, similar to Michaela Long, 2017, was part of that inaugural Essendon BFL squad as well. So that's part of that's quite an achievement in history there. Tom Hurd, who we just spoke about earlier, has played sort of that 10 to 15 BFL games, was drafted in 2020 as part of the uh, supplementary kind of rookie period there. And Alex Hurd just debuted last weekend in the VFL squad and uh, has played the one game there and, and kicked the goal. Uh, there's one more herd to come, William Hurd, so we'll see if he follows in his brother's footsteps and uh, and, and continues on. Maybe has a sterling Anzac Day performance similar to his brother's. And we'll finish with the Wangadine. So not drafted as father-son text this year. He actually came through. It's a supplementary period, but his uh, father, Gavin, uh, played the 127 games for Essendon, 173 games for Port, kicked 250 goals, and uh, young Texas played a couple of games and got a goal under his belt as well. And I think we're all looking forward to to watching him play in the future. So we'll move yes. on to Bombers numbers now. Um, we're doing number seven and number 30 this week. So, Brendan, I'll kick off number seven. I'll uh, pass to you now to talk about Harry Hunter. Yeah, so... Harry played the uh, 109 games between 1921 and 1929, including the 1924 Premiership. Uh, but really, his contribution was made post-football career. So he he obviously joined in 1921 and he, he left the club in, at his death in 1971. So he gave 50 years of service to the football club. Uh, so he was... You know, a, par- a players' advocate. He was a committeeman. He was the inaugural president of the Past Players and Officials Association. He was both vice president and treasurer of the football club, including, and he was a founding member of the Essendonians coterie. Uh, interesting, Mark. In uh, he also was co-coach in 1939 with Dick Reynolds. So, you know, co-coaching with Warsfold and Rutten. What's what's old is new. What's new is old. There, so obviously, a uh, long, long period of time at the football club. He's inducted into the Hall of Fame uh, at Essendon and is an official legend of the Hall of Fame. So one of the one of the real, real Essendon people and uh, good to see him rewarded with uh, life membership and also being a legend in the Essendon Football Club Hall of Fame. Next up, we'll move on to Bill Hutchison. Bill Hutchison uh, could quite possibly be the best player Essendon's ever had. Uh, played from 1942 to 1957, the 290 games and the 496 goals, Mark. 
He played in four premierships, 1942, 1946, 1949 and 1950. He was captain from 1951 to 1957. He's a dual Brownlow medalist in 1952 and 1953. He won the Essendon Best and Fairest a record equaling seven times, 46, 48, 50, 52, 53, 55, 56. He is in the Essendon team of the century. He's in the Australian Football Hall of Fame. He is a legend in the Hall of Fame in the AFL. Uh, Equal to, you know, Dick Reynolds and John Coleman, who are also the only three Essendon players who are legends in the AFL Hall of Fame. He's obviously an Essendon life member and was ranked number four in the champions of Essendon there. So uh, absolutely amazing contribution. And if you read, you know, his stats, his, you know, goals and the type of player that he would be, I think if you were to put a modern context on you know, who's a modern player that plays like Bill Hutchison, uh, I think it's pretty fair to say that Gary Ablett Jr. is that player. So talk about all the plaudits about Gary Ablett Jr. being one of the best players ever played the game. Well, if you say that about Gary Jr., you could probably say that about Bill Hutchison. Yeah, it's a fair fair CV there. And we'll move on to the third player here, which is um, Charlie Payne. Yeah, so Charlie played the 184 games for Essendon, 128 goals. Played from 1962 to 1972. Um, played in the back pocket, kind of, but also contributed up forward as well. Uh, played in a couple of grand finals for us. Uh, and then at post Essendon time, he went to play for North Adelaide in the Sandful. And 52, 52 games for 94 goals. The next player here, we just spoke about his brother in the Don's DNA segment, uh, but now we're going to talk about Chris Danaher. Yeah, so Chris, the uh, the youngest of the Danahers there, played from 1987 to 1997 for the Bombers. 124 games, 40 goals there. Um, tough, hard, kind of great stamina, kind of just keep going and going and going. Strong defensive player. Um, we could use a we could use a Chris Danaher at the moment there. Uh, played in the nineteen ninety grand final loss to Collingwood, and in the nineteen ninety three premiership uh, against Carlton. Um, I think yeah, good player, solid citizen, uh, could play both forward and back. Was strong overhead, um, did his role, and of course is part of the the great Danaher family. And you know that's Essendon people. You just mentioned that we could we could do with him at the moment. We could also do with this guy here, Dean Solomon. We most certainly could. So, so Dean played the 158 games for Essendon for the 56 goals. He played in, in total over 200 games as he moved to uh, Fremantle uh, post-Essendon there. Uh, 2,000 premiership player, uh, hard, rugged, could play, play predominantly half-back, but it could also move into the middle uh, was actually quite a good uh, user by foot. Uh, could play well above his height. Was quite strong. Um, yeah, and was making a very successful career as an assistant coach uh, on the Gold Coast there. And I think he's now kind of left football there as part of the COVID cuts. But uh, might might come back in in a couple of years. I think he just wanted to dedicate some some time to his family there. So um, 
hopefully uh, in the future maybe Dean can find his way back to the Bombers and, and help out with the coaching there. I know he's a very still a very passionate Essendon person. You can see him on, on Twitter and stuff. He puts some stuff out there. And uh, I've also heard him commentating a couple of games on SEN as well. He, he still re- really loves the Bombers there and he's, he's still a very passionate man. And our current number seven is Zach Merritt. And I think, fair to say, if Zach keeps going the way he is, that he'd, uh, he'd fit comfortably in with some of the names we've just mentioned and be talked about as a, as a great Essendon person as well. Yeah, well, he's already won the three BNFs, Zach, and he's, what, 25, 26, and he signed that big six-year deal. He's he's probably going to be the captain uh, from next year onwards, I would guess, there. So by the end of his career, hopefully he can get the... Uh, get another contract on top of the one he already has. And, you know, all of a sudden you're looking at a guy that's played 200, 250 games, multiple BNFs, uh, you know, captain for a long time. Um, yeah, and I think we really, hopefully under his leadership going forward, it can really drive a high level of training and standards and kind of, you know, really just be, okay, this is time for us to succeed. We'll move on to Guernsey number 30 now. We'll start with Jeff Leake. Jeff Leake, uh, one of the great Essendon uh, Ruckman there. Played from 1951 to 1962 for the uh, the 91, 191 games and 98 goals. Uh, one of his finest performances actually came in his last game, Mark, there where he, um, he had a very bad ankle injury coming into the game there and he played on painkillers to get through. And he, he famously tells a story there uh, that had him to try to test him out, had him kick a kick a medicine ball. I mean, for half an hour, he had to kick a medicine ball. And he just he tells a story. He goes, he just nudged it. And then he eventually kicked it a bit further, a bit further. And all of a sudden, he was kicking his medicine ball like five, ten metres. And they're like, okay, he's fit. He goes out to the play and then he tells a story. They said, little did I know, I was kicking it with my good foot. <laughs> Uh, so he went out there, played one of the best games for the club and uh, got us over the line in the premiership. So uh, great character, Jeff Flake. I think also went into some commentary after his uh, football career. So that's where some, some players might know him from there. But, you know, uh, yeah, great character and a, and a good player for the Bombers. Next up is Kevin Walsh. Yeah, so Kevin uh, was probably some, some listeners might be aware of there, played... The 162 games and 20 goals for the Bombers in the 80s. It was part of the um the 1984 and 85 Premiership sides. Uh, kind of was kind of a really quite tall, red head, bit gangly. Had the had the moustache there. Um, kind of early to foot, early on in his career was a bit kind of like one of those Kevin Sheedy project players there. But one, by the time he hit his straps there, he was certainly certainly a very good player there. He played on. Played on Darren Burden in those grand finals and uh, was a was a key role while we won. Uh, it was actually an All Australian in 1986, so that shows you uh, how far how far he came and obviously represented Victoria on multiple occasions as well. Uh, the next player along here is Mark Fraser. Yes, yeah, so Mark is the uh, son of Essendon champion Ken Fraser. Uh, so Mark only played the 65 games for Essendon. For the 26 goals, he played another 45 games for Collingwood. Uh, he played for Essendon between that 1995 to 2000 period there. Uh, but what what was interesting about Mark there, Mark, <laughs> was that he actually uh, was the first former VFL AFL footballer to become an umpire. 
since in the AFL era and certainly since the 1950s there. So he actually became, also became the chairman of the AFL match review panel uh, post his umpiring career. So he kind of had a wide and varied uh, association with the, both the Essendon Football Club and the game as a whole. So, you know, pr- pretty impressive to be Essendon, Collingwood, umpire, head of the match review panel. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's pretty full-on, amazing stuff. It's one of the great things I like about this segment, Mark, is kind of delving into the history of the players who played for the club and just kind of the interesting things you can pick out. Yeah, it's great service to the game as a whole. And it's um, yeah, something that you don't hear about very often. So, it's um, yeah, it's unique to hear it. Uh, we'll finish here with Paddy Ryder, who wore the number 30 when his time at Essendon. Yeah, so 170 games, 117 goals for Paddy from... 06 to 2014, and then later on went to play, you know, 73 games for Port Adelaide. Is now currently on St Kilda's list, having played the 26 games so far. Um, was an All Australian in 2017. Was funnily enough an Anzac Day medalist uh, once upon a time as well himself for the Bombers. Played forward, back. His best position has obviously been in the ruck. Uh, yeah, it's kind of. Sad to see, sad to see Paddy go. He's obviously was one of, if not the number one fan favourite at the time there, and uh, had had the opportunity to come back when he left Port Adelaide and decided to go to St Kilda there. But um, yeah, um, hopefully one day he can reconnect with the Bombers and play a you know big part of the you know past players association with 170 games there, Mark, and potential for father son in the future, linking back to the, what you were talking about in the Bombers DNA there. So. Um, yeah, Paddy at his best, uh, hell of a player. Definitely. And uh, our current number 30 is Brandon Zerk Thatcher, who thankfully has got himself into the team at the moment and hopefully he can string a few games together because I feel like he's got a, he's got a bit to give and a bit to show um, young BZT. Yes, um, yes. I, I like the fact that he's in the side at the moment. He's been backed in. You know, not great that Stewie's out with an injury, but... He seems to be a guy that just needs a bit of confidence and needs to be backed in and said, okay, mate, this spot's yours. I think he went uh, went at 100% disposal efficiency on the weekend there. Uh, but, you know, it's – yeah, just want to see him grow. I think this – I think he's got another year go past this year. On the, I think he signed a two-year deal. So, um, yeah, hopefully he can kind of make that, that spot his own going in the future. All right, let's go to our last break and we'll come back to preview this week's game against the Dogs. So this Sunday, 1st of May, we will be playing the Western Bulldogs. It's an away game for us, but it's at Marvel Stadium, 3.20 on Sunday. So, Brendan, it's not your favourite time slot of 4.40 on Sunday, but uh, it's a little bit earlier for you, which is good. Oh, they've, uh, they've, heard, they've heard me and they've answered my prayers, Mark. <laughs> yeah, so we'll just um, start with some of the injuries here. So... Michael Hurley, there was a bit of an update actually today on him via the club's performance update. So it sounds like he's starting to get over that calf injury and will reintegrate into some running and then hopefully into some skill and ball work drillers over the next couple of weeks. So uh, hopefully that means sort of by mid-year, hopefully we're starting to see Michael's name pushed into maybe the VFL uh, for a bit of game time. That, that would be quite an achievement um, for his health. And then Kyle Langford with that hammy, He's probably sort of three to five weeks away still. Uh, Darcy Parrish with the ankle is a test, as we said earlier. Uh, Andy Phillips with his hammy. 
Um, no real update on him, but you would assume that he's another three weeks away uh, at a minimum. Will Snelling with his calf, not not a huge amount of updates on him either, but uh, sort of probably that six-week kind of range. Yeah, they said, I think last week in the performance update there, uh, they said we're not going to see uh, – Sean Murphy said we won't see Snelling until after the bye. So it's a bit open-ended there. Maybe, you know, I think the bye is round 12, so we're currently at round – what, six or seven, so, you know, six weeks there. But certainly, uh, I hope for Snell's sake, they, they take every all the time they need to get him right because you don't want reoccurrences of any soft tissue injury, but let alone calves because calves do hang around in their nasty injuries. So hopefully um, we give him the extra couple of weeks if he needs it. Yeah, James Stewart's another one with a calf and uh, our best guess is that he's still a couple of weeks away. Um for Stu there. Uh, Patrick Voss with his foot. Um, coincidentally, we, we saw him on the weekend and he wasn't wearing the moon boot, so that's a good sign. Um, not a lot of updates on him. That'll be just a, a week-by-week thing, I'm guessing, with the loads and stuff like that that they're going to be monitoring. Uh, Jaden Laverde is a test with his knee, presented with a bit of swelling and everything when he came back into training, but apparently no structural damage, so they're just waiting to see how he pulls up this week. Uh, Harrison Jones, unfortunately, reached his ankle a couple of weeks ago in the VFL. So it basically said that they've kept him completely off it. He hasn't trained. He won't play VFL this week. Um, and they're going super precautious uh, for Harry Jones to, to try and get him a consistent run, I guess, um, hopefully for the back half of the year. So hopefully that's uh, not, not too much more serious than that at the moment. And then Tex Wanganen, um, to be honest, didn't, know he was injured until the performance update and they mentioned that he'd also tweaked his ankle a little bit um, that's why he didn't play the VFL on the weekend and uh, it looks like he'll, he'll miss that week and hopefully come back this week Yeah and like Paddy Voss we also saw Tex on the uh, on the on uh, Monday there and walking around and he seemed seemed okay wasn't in the moon boot there so hopefully it's just a precautionary one for him I think they mentioned it's on the same foot that he previously had his navicular injury on so they'll just being a bit cautious to make sure that you know there's no stress reaction, what's called a flare up in the old injury there. So um, yeah, good good to be cautious, Mark, with with injuries. Yeah, well, especially with someone like Tex that we want to see hopefully play for a long period of time, and it's it's important that he gets um, development. So if it means missing a week so that he can play the next month in the VFL and push again for a senior spot, then that's kind of what we'd want to see. Um, do you want to maybe just take us through some of the Bulldogs' injuries uh, for their key players and who, who we won't have to face this week? Yeah, so Josh Bruce, he's still coming back from his ACL injury from last year uh, that he did against us in, uh, I think it was a round 20 game where Wrighty kicked that seven. So he's still out for another 10, 12 weeks, so we won't see him. Timmy English, the Rackman, is out for a month with a hammy. Uh, Mitch Hammond's got a concussion, so he's the... Health safety protocols, we won't see him. Uh, Lockie Hunter's obviously well publicised, got some personal issues at the moment. It's taken some time away from the football club. Uh, so we won't have to worry about Lockie. Uh, Jason Johannesson's got a calf. He's two weeks. Alex Keith has got a hammy. He's two to three. Toby McLean's got a knee. He's eight weeks. And Latham Vandermeer, hamstrings, got two weeks. You know, a number of good players there, Mark, there. You know, obviously Keith. And Bruce are key position players at either end. English is probably their almost their number one ruckman slash second key forward. 
Uh, Lockie Hunter and Jason Johannesson are both premiership players and good players there. And Latham Vandermeer is one of those ones that, you know, has caused a bit of trouble in, in the past. You kind of underrated player, lesser name, but always seems that uh, put in a good performance against us. So um, they've got a number of key players out. But as, as is the case when you're a side that makes a grand final mark, Still got a lot of good players that are playing. So we'll move into the key opposition players this week. And it's it's midfield, midfield, midfield. So there, you know, we our boys have got to step up and step up defensively because uh yeah, they're gonna get a, a decent workout this week. So the first two players there we'll, we'll talk about there is Josh Dunkley and Adam Trelaw. They're obviously best mates at the club there. They have their own podcast together, so I think we'll um talk about them together. So obviously Dunkley's a big, strong inside mid. Trelaw can play inside and outside. Um, I guess in terms of matchups there, I'd probably say a fit stringer goes to Dunkley. Um, both big bodies, both can win their own ball, get a ball going forward. As we mentioned earlier, Mark, I don't know if Jakey's fit enough to be playing big midfield minutes at the moment. And then with Trelaw, um, Quite a versatile player. If he plays more inside, I could see maybe Jai Caldwell. Um, I would say a good matchup would be probably be Archie Perkins, but I don't think they're going to be playing Archie in the midfield a lot this year. It seems to be more up forward. So maybe if they wanted to maybe give an education job, maybe that's one for Benny Hobbs. Send Benny Hobbs to Trelaw and kind of teach him where to run, how to run, how you've got to work inside, outside, contested, uncontested. It might be a, not a bad uh, education for him. Uh, I might group the next two together, similar to what you did there. So Jack McRae and Bailey Smith, both mids that can play inside and outside. McRae, obviously, pretty classy, classy mid and racks up some big numbers. And Bailey Smith is quite explosive and uh, and obviously sort of shot to a bit of stardom over the last couple of years, both on and off the field. And uh, he can be pretty damaging on the field, which is what we're worried about. So... Maybe Jack McRae, Zach Merritt is, is maybe a good matchup there, can match him in, in terms of class and uh, I guess just ball winning ability and competitiveness there. Hopefully, beat him to the pill. And then Bailey Smith, uh, I guess, given that he's explosive and can be pretty dangerous and can float forward and, and hit the scoreboard as well, uh, maybe Andrew McGrath is, is someone that gets a bit of a job and similar to what he did against Petrarca with Melbourne, kind of just go with him and try and hurt him the other way uh, is probably the same kind of role. Uh, we, we could see him hopefully play uh, on the weekend against the Dogs. Yeah, and the uh, the next two we'll talk about are two more midfielders in uh, Tob Limbratore and Marcus Bontempelli. Libba's obviously uh, just a clearance machine under the ruck when it's nose and on the bottom of packs wins clearances there. So I think we've got to we've got to play exactly like that in Darcy Parish. I think that's a good matchup. I think they were one and two last year in terms of center clearances in the competition, so it'll be a good head-to-head battle. And Bonson Pelly, he's just he's one of the best five players in the competition. Obviously, star inside midfielder, but also with his height, can kind of go forward and um, take a mark and be dangerous there. I think a good matchup for him, both in the midfield and up forward, but especially when he drifts forward, is it's Mason Redmond there. Uh, Redmond's obviously quite an aggressive guy, strong body, likes to attack the, the ball and the man. Um, I think also he could be one that could actually try to get him going the other way. But we all know the Red Dog loves to loves to float forward and maybe kick a big sausage from outside 50. So 
Uh, hopefully uh, he can do that and keep uh, Bonapelli accountable. So Bonapelli just doesn't have it all on his own terms. In terms of uh, the big key forward there, Aaron Norton there, I think he's really the one that's going to pose a, a big matchup difficulty for us. We've gone with Laverde there, but Lavs, you know, carries multiple injuries every week. He's got this knee. He might not be fit. Norton's a pretty good athlete and he's, you know, one of the premier high-marking forwards there. So, yeah, maybe BZT, maybe do they bring in Zach Reid? I think that's Zach Reid's a big ass to come in after such a long injury layoff to play that. Maybe Aaron Francis gets gets a tap on the shoulder. He goes back. I know in the final last year they played Jordan Ridley on him. So maybe they look to do that again this year. Uh, I'm not sure, Mark. And then I think we've got the final player there as well. One, one of your favourites. Yeah, I, I really love watching Cody Waitman play and the way he goes about it and earns his free kicks. No, I, I really dislike watching this bloke who he tore us apart and uh, broke our hearts in the final. And uh, fair to say that most Essendon fans don't, don't enjoy his contribution. And uh, having said that, he's he knows what he's doing down forward and he manages to kick goals against most teams. So he's, he's a player that we've got to watch. And I guess similar to what just happened on the the wait of the weekend with with Ginevan on Monday is it's going to be the same kind of thing. You know, this is the sort of guy who can have eight touches and and uh, put thirty points on the scoreboard for for his team. So we really need to be careful with Cody Waitman. And I guess it's an area stopping the small forward was an area we identified last year, and we specifically got Jake Kelly into the side for for that reason as a bit of a stopper and a shutdown defender. So. I guess this is where that trade hopefully pays off and we send Jake Kelly to him and stamp him out of the game. I think it's a good matchup as well, Jake, because you, you get under your skin as well and push you and poke you and uh, make you earn your kicks and, and that as well. So I think um, I think that'd be a good matchup. Um, ins and outs, I guess, for what changes we might make to the team. So I guess Hind came in as the sub during the third quarter. But does he retain his spot in the side? He had 14 disposals in that last quarter. But as you said earlier, when it's 64% efficiency, uh, he was trying to do the right thing. But I just feel like he's a bit out of form. And maybe he's one that benefits from actually going back to the VFL and getting some footing and getting some confidence and working on his skill a little bit. So if Hind drops out of the side altogether and is not sub, who do we bring in? Well, yeah, Tommy Cutler's the guy I'd bring in. I'd, I'd drop, I'd drop Hine there. He's obviously he was dropped from the, from the, from the twenty-two into the sub role. He came on, won plenty of footy there, but turned it over a lot and didn't really get us going forward there. So, with Cutler's, you know, pretty decent numbers out of a half of football there. I think he was probably stiff to, kind of find himself on the outside anyway. He's certainly one I consider bringing in there. With Cutler as well, I'd love to see him come back as well because I think since the second half of last year, he's performed exceptionally and I thought he'd been pretty good this year and was pretty stiff to fall out of the side after missing that week with health and safety protocols as well. Um, I, I certainly don't think he's been the worst player for us this year. And if he does come into the side, I want to see him play up half back. It's, it's an area where we're struggling for form at the moment and... We, we could send Cutler to halfback because it's not like someone's holding him out. 
I just really don't want to see us put him on a wing or something like that and play him out of position. We've got a history of playing players out of position. And we've all seen since the midway point of last year that Tom Cutler plays his best footy in defence. And that's where he's played career-saving footy for himself. And that's where we need to play him if he comes back in. I certainly echo those thoughts. Uh, The next one is, I I don't know if I kind of agree with this or don't agree with it, Mark, but Kane Baldwin, he struggled uh, last week there. Um, The the ball kind of wasn't kicked to his favour much either, so um, I'll give him that credit. But do we back a young player in to give him continuity? Or is he kind of like Tex Wanganine? He's just missed a lot of football. He's young. He's probably... Needs a six to eight way block in the VFL just to find out what playing senior football is all about. I think it is a tough one. I think the way I'm going to frame the response is if he was already in the VFL side last week, I would keep him there to get that sort of four or five games, you know, under his belt and, and a real good consistent block of footy. But I think given that he's played round one and then got dropped and come back in for round six uh, against the Pies there. Both games haven't been exceptional games by any means, but I think given that he's in the side, I think it's more damaging for Kane's confidence and development if we drop him out of the side now. I think I think we need to say to Kane, you, you're in for the next couple of weeks. You're going to play against the Dogs and you're going to play against the Hawks and then we'll see where you're at. And I think we need to back him in and let him know that you're going to play the next two weeks because he there's no, there's no issue with his effort and with his running and... He gets around, gets around the ground, and he gives a hundred percent, and he tries to create opportunities and leads and doubles back, and he does all those things. And I feel like if you keep doing those things, eventually everything else comes and it and it falls into place. So although he didn't have a have a great game and get lots of footy, I I would back Kane in um, to to play again this week. That sounds good. And seems to feel like the question we ask every week: uh, Aaron Francis, does he get into this side? And if he does, where does he play? So, obviously, we, we have an issue up forward there. Um, we have an issue down back. Does he come in to play on on Norton? Does he come in to play up forward to give Wright and Baldwin a chop out? Do we do we do what I suggest, play him in the guts? You know, you kind of we think he played, you know, I think last week there against Port Melbourne, he spent, you know, five, five or ten minutes late on, on the wing there and kind of, Showed a bit, you know. I, I've said this all along, Mark. I think his best spot's down back. I think he, he can compete as a forward, but I would just love to see what they can, what he can do in the middle. So his big issues being his fitness. This preseason talked about how he trained the house down, right? I think if you put him in the middle, where he didn't have time to, you know, think it, think it. He just had to react, had to move quick. He'd, he'd do it brilliantly. He's he can win his own ball. He can win it in the air. He can use his size, which we desperately need in that midfield, to knock a couple of blokes over. And then he can do what I what we're talking about with with Draper. You know, don't get the ball. Don't go back. No, go handball and backwards. Don't go sideways. Just get the ball. Get it going forward. We'll get it in there quick. You know, we're kicking it to Peter Wright on an out number. We'll get it in there nice and quick to him. Hit him on the chest. He can kick a few goals, and that was what he showed in the preseason. He was playing more of that centre half forward role, where he'd kind of lead up, take that mark around that 60, 70 meter mark, and with his beautiful kicking, he kick it in deep. But why couldn't you do that as a midfielder? 
who knows? Does he play? Where does he play if he does? Yeah, I guess before I answer the does he play question, I, I think I fully I fully agree with what you're saying. I think I think I've, I've seen enough of the experiment of Aaron Francis forward to realise that I, I don't think that that's his best position, and I think we need to to put that away now and and just stop trying that. It's something we've tried for near on a couple of years now, and out of a bit of desperation and the backline being pretty stacked last year, I think all through his juniors and even through the his BFL and AFL career to date, his best footy's been played in the back line. So naturally he's got to play in the back line. But I agree with what you're saying that now's the time to try him somewhere else, to give him a go and see how he how he goes. Having said that, he hasn't played footy now for a couple of weeks. So does he come straight back into the AFL side? I think like Baldwin, maybe this is a bit too conservative of me, but like Baldwin, I'm happy to back in BZT, leave him down there in that defensive role and give him a couple more weeks and just say to Francis, you're fit now, you're back in playing footy, go to the BFL, we're going to play you in the middle, like you said, or on a wing, or we're going to play you for half a game at centre-half back and then you're going to go into the guts or something like that. Get him, get him to play two weeks in the VFL while BZT does the same in the AFL and then hopefully France is knocking down the door and can come back in because there's a spot for him there in the back line and like you said, there's probably opportunities to rotate potentially through the midfield as well. Like you said, I don't see why he couldn't do that role. But for this week, I think... We stick with what we've got and back back in the likes of BZT. Yeah, look, I don't know where exactly he fits with, you know, the makeup of the side, but he's too good a player and he has too much talent not to be in this side. Like if we were we were two thousand bombers or Melbourne at the moment, right? You can't okay, your best football's here, you can't get in because we got champions on every line. We're 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 far from that at the moment. Right? Our two best players are Stringer and Par- Stringer and Merritt. They've both come back early from injuries, right? And you, you could almost argue, we're, whilst uh, yes, they were able to play and play well, they'll probably rush back. If we were a good side, I don't think we would have seen them play last week. Would have given them the extra week just to make sure they were there. So you don't want to be turning away blokes with talent, especially guys that can play multiple roles. Uh, we talk a lot about how that spot in the back line's maybe been taken from him. But we're bringing in Tommy Cutler for Nick Hine. Francis could play that role. We've talked about Ridley not playing his best football this year. We talked about Hep not playing his best football this year, both of them in the back line. Now, I'm not saying to drop Ridley or Heppel, right? And I'm not saying they don't both play in the back line. But, like, at the start of the year, it's like, ah, oh, no, he's, he, he has to play forward because – the spot in the back line is gone, right? I don't think it's as ironclad anymore. I still think, okay, we can maybe move some sides around, drop some players, do something different. See, see what happens. I just, I just, I, I, I'm a big Francis fan. I think he's exceptionally talented. I think if you could all get it together, he'd be a top ten player in the comp. Right? But he just obviously, for all the various reasons. Of, all Essendon people know over the years he hasn't been able to do it. So, yeah, I just interesting to see what they do with him. He's definitely got the footy IQ and uh, the natural ability there, that's for sure. Um, all right, you, we'll, we'll finish off the pod now. So just a last question for you. 
you pick up the paper on Monday morning, you're at work. What is the uh, what's the headline on the back page of the paper say? Essendon fans right? No, um, <laughs> geez, I don't know. It could look. We beat the we beat the dogs in that round twenty two game, whatever it was last year. So it can be done, right? And the dogs certainly aren't playing as good football as they are now as what they were then, or even when they belted us in the final. I would think that if we're, you know, listen to Andy McGrath's chat with Lordy, I think it was quite insightful, where he said, oh, we, we're sick of, uh, you know, being a young side and all this type of thing. Well, I think this is maybe the chance to, if you've got that fire in the belly and you really want to prove the doubt is wrong and all us fans here, like that's criticising, oh, you know, this, that and the other, try and get go out there and try and knock the dogs off. Use a bit of the heartache from the finals last year to drive you if that's what it takes, you know. And dogs aren't this is a winnable game, right? I'm not saying it's likely, but I still think it's winnable, right? Having said that, I also think it's a 10 goal loss. <laughs> so that's kind of where we're at at the moment. With this. I don't think it's a, every week's, a, either week's, a, a slight chance of a win or a, ma- or a big chance of getting flogged. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the gap between the two hasn't uh, hasn't narrowed, unfortunately. So until we start seeing some more consistent performances, I think that's going to continue being the case because I think it's going to be more of the same next week against the Hawks and more of the same the week after against the Swans. It's too hard to say uh, whether we're a realistic chance of winning or whether we'll get smashed. So hopefully, I think just want to see competitive performance and some players come back into a bit of form. And uh, it's going to be slowly, slowly, but hopefully we start to see see that progression. All right. Uh, I think that's it for this week's pod. So go Dons. Go Bombers.